Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we're looking at the second half of this chapter. This morning we've transitioned from the first section of the book of Revelation, which included primarily a focus upon the seven letters, or the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And now we've come to the second section, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and concluding in chapter 8, verse 1, which includes the opening of seven seals. So you go from seven churches to seven seals. So upon um, ascending into heaven in his vision, John sees a throne of, of God. That's the first thing he, his, li- his eyes notice. As he ascends into heaven is he notices the throne of God. And it is a throne of glory, of grace, and of judgment. We looked at that last week. The principle there was that our worship must be God-centered. God is seated on the throne and everything else described in this chapter is described in relationship to God. They're before it, they're around it, right? They're, um, uh, they're, they're surrounding it. Uh, They're coming out from the throne, like the flashes of lightning are coming out from the throne. And then you have God, of course, seated on the throne. But it's all in relationship to God being on the throne at the center of heaven. And in the rest of this chapter, John continues his description of what he sees, but now he includes also what he hears. He continues to describe the things he's seen and witnessing, but now it's also involving what he hears, the worship that is declared. And so two hymns are recorded in this section, right, in verse 8 and verse 11. One is declared by the four living creatures that are in the midst of God's throne, while the other is declared by the 24 elders who surround the throne. So these hymns clarify Primarily, in their language, they clarify that God alone is to receive our worship because He alone is perfectly holy and worthy. In his critique of Christianity in a postmodern world, David Wells writes this, God has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's not obviously talking about God become like God doing something different, but it's that the people are not responding. They don't, they have treated him as unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. And really, that's a critique of Christianity in the postmodern world. See, it's this critique of the impact of the church in a believer's own life. But we've been created to seek glory. God has made us in his image. And so if if we are indifferent to the worship of God, that radical indifference has to be replaced by an inferior form of worship. If we're not worshiping God, we are worshiping someone or something else. It's inevitable that we will find something or someone to direct our affections. And so our Western idols tend to be related to business or entertainment, 
Right? We have successful entrepreneurs, sports icons, Hollywood celebrities, and we crave as a people, as a population, we crave to behold their glory. Right? We gather together, we line the streets, we put out the red carpet, we want to see and behold their glory and even contribute to that glory by our own declarations, right? As we cry out to them, we strive if we can only catch a glimpse of them as they walk by. So there's this sense in which this is an inevitable reaction because of how we've been created. But of course, we can all agree within the church that that, that kind of worship is misplaced. That's a misplaced worship. So Rick Phillips says this, the quest for glory itself is implanted in the human heart by God in order to be satisfied by none other than himself. But we're always chasing glory elsewhere. You could read C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. I thought about finding a good quote from there too because it's an excellent essay on the same idea that we're being satisfied by lesser glories. So the consequence of misplaced worship is not only significant for eternity, but they even have immediate impact upon our present lives because we become what we worship. If you give your heart to the gods of the big screen, the gods of Hollywood, of entertainment, then you will become preoccupied with outward beauty and a shallow popularity. If you give your heart to the gods of money, then you will seek career objectives above all else, forsaking children, spouses for your career. When sports become your god, same thing, you will forsake everyone else in order to devote your love and affection to your team. That takes precedence over any other relationship, any other responsibility. On the other hand, when we direct our worship toward God, we begin to imperfectly reflect his attributes. The primary attributes emphasized in this text are God's holiness and worthiness. And so if we are indeed becoming what we worship, then worshiping a holy and worthy God is how we become holy and worthy disciples. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for this image, this illustration of the throne room and all of the worship that takes place there at all times, or even now, these living creatures and these angelic beings are are calling out to you, declaring you to be holy and worthy. And we, as your people here on earth, are also joining in that chorus, declaring you to be holy and worthy. And we recognize that as we worship you, we are reflecting that beauty of holiness and worthiness back to you. That part of our worship is how you are transforming us. And so we thank you. This is truly a means of grace. As we sit under the preaching of your word, Lord, do that work that only you can do. Cause us to be attentive. Remove the distractions from our minds. Help us to, to sit under your word 
and to be changed by it as we engage in worshiping you. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 4, verses the second half of 6 to the end of the chapter. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, who are the four living creatures? This is the opening section that we'll be looking at. We'll we'll just break this down into two sections. Verses 6b through 8 is the glory of God's holiness, the glory of God's holiness. And we begin by asking what these, who these four living creatures are. They, they surround the throne, and there's an, an, an illusion, a clear illusion to both Ezekiel and Isaiah, but none of those illusions provide identical parallels. So if you were to compare the the description of these four living beings to the description of these same creatures in Ezekiel or Isaiah, they don't have parallel descriptions. Um, Instead of each creature having four faces as they do in Ezekiel, all four of the living creatures have four different, have four faces. Those four faces are here in Revelation distinct, right? Each creature has one, represents one face. The ox, the human the eagle, and the lion. Um, yeah, the lion. So in, in Ezekiel, all four of those faces are in each creature. Uh, and that's found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, as well as 18. Revelation also portrays each creature as having <clears throat> uh, six wings, like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision. But in Ezekiel's vision, they only have four wings. So you have to go to Isaiah to see this description of six wings with which two they cover their eyes, two they cover their feet, and two they fly. Well, if you can't reconstruct an identical image of these heavenly cherubim from the various texts, if they're not all identical, they're not parallel in that sense, but they're clearly related to, so, that, so much that you know these are the only three passages you really find a description of these elders. What we should understand then is that they are symbolic representations. They're symbolic representatives. That doesn't mean that I'm saying they're not real. They are real. They are truly in heaven. They are living beings. They are real creatures. But John is not providing a literal representation of them. He's not giving us a photographic image 
or picture of what they look like with that kind of precision. Rather, they represent categories of God's created order. So they correspond to the four corners of the earth. Uh, They represent each of the domains of creation praising God. As is true of all God's creation, when you read Psalm 19 or Psalm 104, they were made to give glory to God. And so their entire purpose for existing is to model creation giving ceaseless praise to the Creator. Scripture portrays heavenly cherubim as guardians and bearers of God's throne. And so that was true of the cherubim that were placed in the Garden of Eden. Right? They guarded man from eating of the tree of life. It's true of the golden cherubim that um, flanked the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. So as guardians, they, would have, they had numerous eyes so that they could see everything that was taking place. Ezekiel portrayed the throne of God as being transported by angelic beings with wheels. These same beings that are described here also have wheels in Ezekiel, and that's with which they can transport the throne of God from place to place. So God, in in Psalm 18.10, God is seen to be flying upon a cherub. So God's presence could be transported wherever his people were found to be giving him glory. And the cherubim, the seraphim, their responsibility was to guard the throne of God as well as to bear that throne, to be the ones carrying it from place to place. As is typical in Revelation, Satan represents a a counterfeit model of this. And so you have in Revelation 9, 7 through 11, uh, a hybrid locust that has portions of it that are reflecting even humanity. They have faces of a human, but then they're, they're also demonic. They come from below. These angelic beings have descriptions of creation, and they're, they're a hybrid with, with what is above, with the world above. So the world above is being combined with creation, and then Satan does the opposite. He says, let's take the things from below and combine them with creation. Let's give an alternative so that people can redirect their thoughts towards God and His holiness and find their satisfaction in a far lesser glory, right? one that is ultimately destructive to them. And so you have that in Revelation 9. You also have it in, later on in Revelation 13. The beast that rises out of the sea is a combination of both worldly attributes as well as demonic features. So they serve as a counterfeit alternative to the four living creatures who combine features of creation with descriptions of heaven. Instead of bringing satanic chaos and destruction, these four living creatures bring heavenly harmony between God and creation through the continual offering of worship. What these creatures are forever reciting is the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is the only attribute of God that is described with that threefold repetition. Holiness to its perfection. The holiness of God refers to his moral perfection. God is perfectly righteous. 
He is always faithful and just. God never does wrong. The psalmists frequently exhort us to sing praises to the Holy One of Israel. It's, it's his defining characteristic. He is utterly unique in his holiness. And so whenever we enter into the presence of a holy God, the first thing we do is we prepare ourselves for that encounter. Right? Moses was asked to remove his sandals because the ground upon which he stood was considered holy. We prepare ourselves before taking the Lord's Supper with an inward examination right, to make sure that we're participating in a worthy manner because we recognize that we are worshiping a holy God. But there's also a reflective component to worship. Remember the, the precious gemstones that are described in, in verse 3 of chapter 4. We read, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So you have three different gems represented there, an emerald, jasper, and a carnelian. Whenever the, the high priest would perform his mediating duties in the temple, Maybe you recall what he was required to wear. He had vestments, but he had this ephod. And what was in that ephod? There were 12 gemstones. And some of the language of gemstones, you either find it in reflection upon the glory of God, or you find it in the description of what the priests were required to wear. That's where you find this language. So what is the priest's responsibility? It is to come and mediate the presence of the people within the, uh, you know, before a holy God. Whenever the, the high priest would perform those mediating duties in the temple, he wore that ephod, which would reflect the beauty of God's glory. So now, under the new covenant, we don't go through a high priest. We ourselves, as the priesthood of believers, come into the Holy of Holies. And what is our responsibility? What is our role in that worship? It is to reflect back to God the glory that he is displaying. And so in eternity, in heavenly worship, that is the perfect reflection. Right? Our, our worship will be in all its perfection for all eternity, reflecting back God's holiness, the beauty and glory of his holiness back to him. So what is now a dim reflection will then be perfected. And part of that reflection is the splendor of holiness. So as, as Greg Bill argues in his book titled, We Become What We Worship, he says this, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. So if you worship idols, you become spiritually deaf and dumb like them. That's the language of Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. If you worship these idols, these graven images that have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear and mouths that do not speak, if you worship idols like that, then you are becoming like that. And it's obviously not a literal it's not in a literal sense like you're turning into a, a little figurine. 
but you're becoming like that spiritually speaking. You're, you no longer see the things of God. You can no longer speak the things of God. You can no longer hear the word of God. If you, begin, if you worship that idol, you become like it. You resemble them for your ultimate ruin. But when you worship a holy God, you begin to resemble him for your restoration. Or as we saw in the confession, for your renewal. We are being progressively sanctified, transformed into his likeness. And this requires diligence. As Peter would say in 2 Peter 3.11 and 14. Or as we read in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It requires diligence to put off your old self and to put on the new self. Ephesians 4 verses 22 through 24. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I believe Matt read from that passage, but it requires a striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. So in addition to declaring the glory of God's holiness and then reflecting that in our own lives, we also declare the glory of God's worthiness. And we see that in the second half here, uh, in the, the last portion of this chapter, verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures were giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders all fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So as the four living creatures are doing, so now the 24 elders are joining in that worship and their song is, is a little different, right? But they're also declaring the worthiness of God, the glory of God's worthiness. So you have the glory of God's holiness and now you see the glory of God's worthiness. To engage in worship is in fact literally to engage in worthship to declare the worth of the object of your worship, right? to declare him to be worthy to receive your praise. Dennis Johnson says the 24 elders prostrate themselves before the Lord and they cast their crowns at his feet, acknowledging that all authority derives from him, belongs to him, and returns to him. And so as we discerned with the four living creatures, uh, which represent God's creation, now we see with the declaration of the 24 elders that we looked at last week that, that God's worthiness is grounded in the fact that he created all things. Because, God's crea- because God created all things, he has the authority and the power to bring it back into complete order. But to do that, he has to eliminate every last vestige of sin, which brings evil and misery. So the reason that no one is harmed by the flashes of lightning from verse 5, and the reason that the chaos of the sea is glassy and tranquil in verse 6, and the four living creatures do not prey upon each other, but praise their creator, And the 24 elders are not fighting for position, but submitting themselves in humble adoration is because the Lord God Almighty is on his throne in the center of it all. 
where God is central in worship, his creation enjoys peace and harmony in the truest sense of that word. When we consider the glory of the heavens, are they not worthy of our amazement? As we consider the glory of of space, Rick Phillips says, among the starry hosts are entire galaxies shining as one because they are so distant. With the aid of telescopes, our eyes can see millions and billions of stars and galaxies. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way, contains at least 200 billion stars and rotates majestically in space, spanning over 700,000 trillion miles. The heavens declare the glory of God as we read in Psalm 8.1. And yet God has set his glory above the heavens. As the 24 elders bow before God, worshiping him in heaven, his church bows her heart before the Lord, worshiping him on earth. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here we read about the worthiness of the Father in Revelation 4.11. In the next chapter, we'll read about the worthiness of the Son to take the, the scroll and to open its seals in chapter 5. So this is critical to understand because it's, it's the lack of worthy individuals surrounding the, the throne that is cause for John's weeping that no one could take the scroll and read it. No one was worthy to do that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No representation of man was worthy except for the Lamb. The lamb alone was worthy to receive the honor because he alone perfectly obeyed and died a substitutionary death in place of all who trust in him. And just as holiness, the holiness of God begins to have an impact upon the worshiper, so does his worthiness. Remember what Isaiah said in his his vision of the heavenly throne room. It's one of the parallel passages that we've been looking back to in this chapter. Isaiah chapter 6, he's in the heavenly throne room. Remember his, his reaction to it. After hearing the seraphim declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah responds by saying, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then what does God do? God declares his guilt to be taken away and his sin to be atoned for. And because of that, he is made worthy to be God's prophet. Because of God's accomplished work of removing his guilt and atoning for his sin, Isaiah could then answer, here am I, send me. Going from woe is me to send me. Because God has made him worthy. Not because of anything he had done, he stood there. 
He wasn't adding to his righteousness there. He was standing there. Receiving the work of God. So it wasn't anything he had done, but for who he had become. He showed by his faith that he revered God, and thus he became fit for use. And then he walked in obedience throughout his life in the face of much tribulation and suffering and rejection. And we're given numerous examples of people God considers to be worthy. Those who deny themselves and make God their priority are worthy of him. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Those who suffer persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ are worthy of him. 2 Thessalonians 1.5. Those who bear fruit in every good word walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1.10. So when we recognize the worthiness of God to receive our praise... He makes us worthy to be recognized as his disciples. So joining together in worship to declare the holiness of God does a genuine work of transformation in us toward holiness. Like Isaiah, we are not worthy in and of ourselves, but God makes us worthy to become good and faithful servants. Paul exhorted Christians in Thessalonica to walk in a manner worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he prayed that God would make them worthy of his calling. So what I've tried to show this morning is how God does that, how he makes us worthy. It's by worshiping a holy and worthy God, we become holy and worthy disciples. It is a process that is being worked out as a means of grace, as a work of the Spirit in our hearts. It is a work of transformation. And that's why it's so important that we take our worship seriously. It's why we come with reverence and awe. We do our best to eliminate the distractions. We come frequently, especially when we are aware of our sin that encourages us to isolate ourselves and to not come because we don't want to feel the guilt and shame of that sin. But we come recognizing that it is only in Christ that we have received a pardon for that sin and can enter into the same communion and fellowship that our hearts are craving for. We come to worship because we know that by the manifestation of God's holiness and worthiness, he is being glorified and we are being edified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank